first, before we start, I'd like to say thank you to Laurel. How many of you appreciate when she's up here teaching and sharing and she says, oh, I'm just going to tell you this one little story. You always hear about me and my kids, right? You know, that's an anointing of God. That's a teacher's heart. And you do a great job. I know how hard it is. I can tell you as one who stood up here and taught out of a book that you didn't choose. And then all of a sudden you're reading and you're just like, I'm just going to read this, right? I'm just going to read this. I'm just going through this. And then all of a sudden God speaks in the back of your head and says, hey, remember that time? And you go, no. <laughs> and then he goes, no, remember that time? And, you know, the voice of God, the friendly little voice of God becomes the authoritative little voice of God. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, yeah, I'll share that. So you do a great job. Thank you. Amen. It's never a, it's never a drop off. You know, sometimes um, when somebody starts to teach or somebody starts to share, there's such a big gap between, you know, pastors and what you're used to hearing. And then all of a sudden you have somebody else and it's like, wow, you know, not other pastors don't do a great job because they absolutely do. But, you know, it's the same Holy Ghost. It's the same spirit. And I just think that you do a great job. So thank you. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Father God, for the opportunity to come into your house, to be in your presence, Father God. We, we are so grateful and so thankful that we are your children, that we are called by your name, that we are filled with your spirit, that we hear your voice. I thank you that as I yield myself over to you today, Father God, uh, in every aspect, Father, that you will bring forth the word of God. Holy Spirit, I call upon you to be the teacher, to reveal the truths hidden from the foundations of the world. I just give you praise and thanks, Father God, that you will teach each one of us in individually exactly the things that we need to hear and know in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there was a statistic that I came across, and I thought I'd share it with you. Um, in 2012, there were 12.6 million cases of identity theft. That equivalates out to about uh, 20 thefts per minute. So it's a, it's a pretty rampant rampant problem. And one thing that I found um, really interesting, and you can go ahead and open to um, 1 Peter chapter 2, is, you know, it's the same devil, the same plot. It doesn't matter if it's done with computers or if it's done in the old days with a sword in your face. It's still theft. And it, it comes from the same source. It comes from the enemy. And it's the same plan that he's done all along. Now, as the world has changed and gotten a little bit different, you know, obviously the methods have changed. Um, but the impact is still the same. When somebody steals your identity, they're stealing your power. They're stealing who you are. They're, they're stealing your identity, right? Um, so let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, I want to read to you um, in verse 9 and 10. Um, I'm going to read this uh, starting here in the King James. It says, But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in past times, verse 10, were not a people, but now you are the people of God, which have obtained mercy, um, or which had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. Um, and then it go, he goes on in verse 11. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Um, 
If you were to read this in the New Living Translation in verse 10, it says, Once you had no identity as a people, um, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, you, you have now received God's mercy. And I think Peter's bringing out a really interesting thing. When he's talking about uh, the people of God here, he's talking about those who love God. Um, in verse 9, he says, you're chosen. And you know, that is a great need of the people today, of, of every generation. As, as human beings, we all want to be wanted. We all want to be needed. And it's great to know that you're chosen. You know, every time that I read this, I think about when we were kids and we were out on the playground and everybody lined up and you had the two most popular people who were always the captains. And you just wanted to be chosen. And more than anything, you didn't want to be the last pick because really that meant you weren't chosen, right? You know, in your mind, you weren't the one who was chosen. You were just assigned. But all of us want to be chosen. And God's, God's telling us, you are, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're not just some run-of-the-mill, uh, ordinary, common, everyday kind of person. No, you're royalty. You belong to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. The blood that flows in you is of a royal lineage. You've been purchased. You've been bought with a price. Not with the price of just any person, but with the blood of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. With the most precious blood, the most precious substance that's ever been on the face of this earth. You know, Pastor was uh, up here in, on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about the, the worth of a human. And he said, you know, our bodies equivalated out to like $4.50 or whatever. Wow. $4.50 on a good day, <laughs> you know. But nothing can equivalent out to the blood of Jesus. Nothing could equivalent out to the blood of God coming down on earth, redeeming mankind. And, you know, he didn't have to do it. It was his choice. And when he did it, you know, when, when uh, he was on the cross, it says that, that he looked forward into the future and he saw all of us. And so he knew who he was dying for. He knew you and me. He knew exactly the price that he was paying and he knew what he was purchasing. How many of you ever buy anything without even looking at it? Well, no, God looked at us. God said, you know what? They don't look like much. They don't act like much. They don't seem like much but they're mine. I'm going to call them by my name. They belong to me. And he told the enemy, he told Satan, you can no longer have them. You have no authority in their life any longer because they belong to me. And, you know, we allow the enemy to talk and dictate his plans into, into our lives and, and to speak things to us. And sometimes we take those things as truth and they're not the truth. But we just, you know, it sounds good. But no. Who we are is, this is our identity in Christ. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, and it, most people read this, they think peculiar, strange, right? It's not what it means at all. Uh, peculiar means a people of a time. Peculiar means um, people that are um, in motion. It means that you're a generation of people who are moving towards something. You know, if there's ever been a time that I felt like we are moving towards something, it's now. You know, we're, we're coming closer and closer. People have said it for years and years and years, in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s and the 1800s. We're moving closer and closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our, that's our hope. Amen. That is what we are hoping for. But you know what? It's also a reality. 
it's also coming because God is not a man that he should not lie. Neither is he the son of man that he should have to relent or repent. Amen. When he said something, it's true. He promised he would return to us. He said, until I return, I'm giving you another comforter, another meaning exactly the same. One exactly the same. If you looked at Jesus and you looked at the attributes of the Holy Spirit, there is no difference. He said, you'll recognize him when he comes to you because he will speak truth. It's exactly what Jesus was doing, was speaking truth. So we have a promise from God that he's coming. He said, I will not leave you abandoned. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come back to you. We're holding on to that promise. One day the eastern skies will split and we'll see the Lord of glory riding on his white horse. And he will be coming down and he will touch foot on Mount Olympus or what, whichever mount it is, you know, depending on which scholar you believe. And the earth will tremble at his presence. Amen. And we will, will be gone Amen. in the blink of an eye, in the drawing of a breath. And we'll be transformed. We'll be made glorious. We'll lay down these bodies that are made of dust and dirt. $4.50 of worth. And we'll lay down every ache, every pain. Death will lose its grip upon us. Amen. And we will be like him. We will be immortal. We will be eternal. We will be riders in the sky. Amen. Amen. <laughs> it's, it's something to get excited about. Amen. It's something to really, really um, be awesome. And I, I think that the enemy is really in these last days. You know, as time gets closer and closer to his demise, because the Bible already foretold where he's going. There's a, there's a lake of fire with his name on it. And everyone who obeys him and everyone who follows him, basically everyone who has rejected the Lord, everybody is going to have that opportunity to receive the Lord. And everybody who has rejected him, they're going with him. It's not the plan of God. It's not the will of God, but it's the truth. And it's because God's a just God. It's because God is, you know, if you read in uh, Psalms 89, verse 14, it says that um, justice and judgment are the foundation or the habitation of his throne. God will never do anything that's unjust. God always does the right thing. Always. May not seem like it's the right thing to us, but in truth, it is the correct thing. It is always the right things. You know, in Psalms, it says over and over, your word is truth. Your, your word upholds me. Your word is a shield and a buckler to me. And every time, what they're saying is that I can depend upon you. Your word is, is truth. Your word is whole. Your word is holy. Jesus said, you know, I'm the way and the truth and the life. He, he was just telling us, you can always depend on what I'm saying to you. And so that's why, you know, we've heard for years and years, we don't walk by, by sight. We have to walk by faith, confidence, assurance, and trust in God that everything that he says will come to pass. Everything that he has ordained is going to, going to happen. And that which, uh, you know, in, in Romans, is it Romans chapter 8, it says, you know, that he's ordained things for our good. Amen. For our good. Jeremiah 29 says that, you know, and that verse always amazes me. It says that he has plans for our, our future, plans to prosper us, not to hurt us. Right. That you might have a hope for your future. And I always am amazed when you think that when, when you're reading that, we think, oh, you know, it's talking about a hope for our future. But consider the, where those people were. They had just been told by the prophet of God, speaking the truth from the word of God, you're going to be in captivity to these people that you hate for the next 70 years. So build your houses, go ahead and get married. Don't put your life on hold. This thing is going to happen. 
even though all these other false prophets are telling you you're, we're going to walk out of here and gung-ho ready to go. No, the word of God, he told him the truth. Even though the truth wasn't popular and even though the truth wasn't really what they wanted to hear, he still told them the truth. For the next 70 years, you're going to be in captivity. And it all goes back to what they had done previously. Sins, there's always a price to pay. Thank God Jesus paid our price. Thank God. Thank God. Amen. Okay, well, that's all free. It's not even in here. <laughs> all right, so um, when uh, Peter was, uh, was reading this, or when he was speaking this, when he had, had written this, what he was quoting was Hosea 2.23. And you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It says, um, At that time I will plant a crop of Israelites, and I will raise them up for myself, and I will show love to those whom I have called not loved. And to those who are not a people, I will say, now you are my people, and you will reply, you are our God. And you know, that's exactly a picture of, of God. That's exactly a picture of who we were. We were the people who were unloved, but yet before we loved him, he loved us. Before we ever even considered him, he'd already made the, made the way for our salvation. He'd already given his life. He'd already paid the ultimate price before the day we were even born, before our parents even considered having children, before our parents were even alive. He had already paid the price. It was already set in stone. It was, the way was already made. The blood was already shed. The offering was already taken into the heavenly holy of holies and accepted by the most holy God. He said, I will show you love to those who are not loved. I will call you my people. I will own you to those who are not uh, my people. Um, so let's read this a little bit more clearly in uh, Romans chapter 9. And um, verse 25. You know, Paul's kind of telling him the same thing, Romans um, chapter 9. It says, uh, As he has said, I will call them my people, which were not my people. I will call her beloved, which is not beloved. And it shall come to pass, in the place where you are, it was said unto them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the children of the living God. Amen. So there it is in the New Testament. That's for you. You are the children of the living God. Amen. That's your identity. God chooses to identify himself with you. Um, it's the very thing that Satan has tried to stop us from hearing. And, and more than anything, it's, it's tried to stop us from believing it. Um, he wants you to think that you're just a common, ordinary, everyday, you know, nine to five, drive down the freeway, go to work, come home, eat dinner, go to bed, and get up and repeat kind of person. That's not you at all. That may be what you do. You may be in patterns that are familiar, but that's not you at all. The power of the Most High God has come, and he dwells in you. He lives in you. He's chosen to make his, his dwelling place in you. Things that are impossible with man are possible with God, and that God who said that is true, and he lives in you. He lives in me. We have so much power and capacity to do things based on who he is, based on who we are in him, it, it's, it's impossible for us to live ordinary lives. Amen. John 1.12 um, from the New Living Translation says, But to all who believed on him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So you have a right to be, to be the children of God, to be the child of God. Um, John chapter 6, verse 39 says, This is the will of God. So if it's the will of God, well, that, 
probably be important, right? It says that I should not lose even one of those who he has given to me, but that I should raise them up on the last day. So Jesus is going to make sure that you don't get lost. Amen. You know how he does that? I used to think, oh, you know, he's the good shepherd. He doesn't lose his sheep. He'll leave the 99 and he'll go out and he'll find you when you start to wander. You know how he does that? He does that by the Holy Spirit. Because as somebody who has once wandered, as somebody who has walked away, I can tell you there is no peace to those who are outside of the will of God. He will pester you. He will surround you with people. He will t- he, you'll get among the most ungodly people and they will start quoting the Bible to you. Ask me how I know someday. <laughs> it ain't coming while I'm behind a microphone and a pulpit. I'll just tell you. <laughs> so our identity comes from God. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, with identity is the name of our church. You know, people are assigned when, when we were talking about, you know, um, in Second Peter, that word identity is actually, I think it's uh, loes or something like that. Um, anyways, it's, it means a tribe or a group of people. Well, we're a tribe in here. We're, we're a group of people at, at the very minimum, right? Okay. What, what has happened is there's a, a banner that's the, the name of our church, and, and we've talked about it many, many times, right? But we always talk about two words, and there's four in the title of our church, right? What do we talk about? We talk about Shekinah glory, right? And I'll read, read the, these scriptures, but Shekinah glory is the manifest presence of God. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 43 from the Amplified, it says, There I will meet with the Israelites in the tent of meeting, um, and, and the tent of meeting shall be sacrificed, or shall be sanctified by my glory, the Shekinah glory, God's visible presence. Um, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, it says, Then the cloud, the Shekinah, God's visible presence, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, you all know that's the reason that pastors had named this church what, we, what they named it. God told them, if you name this church this, then I will fill your meetings with the glory of God. I will be there in a tangible, present way. They will know that I'm there. You will know that I'm there. Let me tell you, if you're up here preaching, you've got to know that God's here. Or else all you're hearing is echoes. Right? Try it. I invite you. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 9, verse 23 says, Moses and Aaron went to the um, tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah cloud, appeared to all the people as promised. So those, you know, we, we know that. We know that the, the vision of the church is to be a hospital where those who are sick or those who are needing anything can come into this church and receive that which they need. We always say spirit, soul, and body, but, you know, to put it in just a way that we can understand just a little bit more mentally, physically, and spiritually. You know, there's a lot of people who are are sick mentally. There is a lot of people out there who are sick mentally. But, you know, that's not a problem with God. That's not a problem with God at all. That's a detour that the enemy has, has placed in their life, put in their path. Sometimes it's from choices that they've made. But you know what? God is in the business of U-turns. God is in the business of second chances. And if he can, he can restore a man sick of the palsy, who couldn't, couldn't walk, couldn't move, he can do anything. He can do anything. You're his hands, you're his feet. 
Okay, so uh, the Shekinah glory is also discussed in Ezekiel chapter 9 um, through 11 as well. Um, so this church is, is called a hospital, um, but the name of the church is not just Shekinah glory. There's also two other words. What are they? Come on, you write the initials all the time when you're writing your tithe check, right? It doesn't just, you don't just write SG. No, it's SGCF. And those two words have just as much significance and just as much importance. And God still said, you know, he didn't just tell pastors, name the church Shekinah Glory. He said, name the church Shekinah Glory Christian Fellowship. And, and those words have importance. Now, Christian, I assume you guys know what that means. Right? We're not a Muslim church. We're not a Hindu church. We're not a Buddhist church. We're not a church of man. No, we're a Christian church. And, and what it means is that, you know, like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but I live by the faith of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? When, when you're a Christian, you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. A lot of people have made him their savior, which means he's the one who reached out and grabbed them out of the pit of despair that they were sinking into and pulled them up to safe, secure land. He's the rock of their salvation. And it's true. But there's more to being a Christian than that. When you have made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, that's when you become a Christian. Because you can't just live day to day as a normal being and, and have Jesus as the Lord of your life. The word Lord is the word kurios. It's K-U-R-I-O-S. And it means owner. It means that he has ownership over us. Let me find it here. It means master. It means supreme in authority. When we say that uh, he's the Lord in, in our life, it means that he has the supreme authority over us. And what that means is that when the Holy Spirit prompts you and the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity of God, the Holy Trinity of God, it means that you're quick to obey. And that's how you demonstrate that you're a Christian because you're taking orders willingly from God. I'll just stop here and let that sink in just a little bit because it ain't just you that it's sinking into. You know, God has things for us to do. God has plans, purposes. He has things that this world needs to see. He has demonstrations that he wants to make. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul, he did special miracles. When you looked that up, it, it meant that it had never been seen before. It, it was things that were so far out of the ordinary that even religious people thinking as far as they could in advance couldn't even figure it out. Taking handkerchiefs. Now we think, oh, he took like a nice little cloth. He took a nice little prayer cloth, and it was anointed with oil, like we do, right? Now, what it literally was is he was up preaching. He was wearing a tunic. He was preaching as hard as he can. He's sweating. Sweat is dripping off him for hours. And then they took that cloth, that sweaty, stinky cloth that he'd been preaching in for hours, and they cut that up, and they laid it on the sick, and the sick were made whole. Because the anointing of God was there. Because faith was being placed with that cloth in the anointing of God. And those are the special miracles that he was doing. It had never, ever been done before. They didn't take Jesus' tunic, cut it up, and lay it on people. If they would have, it probably would have you know, brought healing into people's lives. It probably would have brought deliverance into their lives. You know, 
This is just a piece of cloth. It's your faith that goes behind it that activates the presence and the power of God. Right? So what happens when we make him Lord of our lives? Well, he becomes master. When next time you're reading through the Gospels, look for that word. And you know, and, and rabbi, the word rabbi just means teacher. But when you, when you look in the Greek, there's a couple of times where they call him something. There's three different levels of a rabbi. There's like a, a you know, just like a real basic teacher. And then there's a, a, the like next level of teacher. Like, you know, you got a little bit of authority, you know, kind of what you're talking about. And then there's, uh, I think it's rabboni. And it's like the highest level of teacher. And when that one guy says, you know, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? He says, why do you call me good? And what he's actually saying is, why are you calling me the highest level of teacher? Don't you know there's only one, and that's God? He was always deflecting natural uh, ability, natural uh, charisma, drawing of man. He's making sure that he knows. He's making sure that that guy knows, you know, all I am is an instrument, because that's really what Jesus was doing. Yes, he was the Son of God, operating as a man under the Old Covenant. And so he's deflecting the glory to the Father, which is what we do as we go along with him, right? So, okay, so that's uh, the Lord, and that's being a Christian. There is one other word that's uh, in our church name, right? Why weren't we called a church? It's a Christian thing. If you go on Google and you type in church, you'll find like 900 different versions of what church means, and every single one of them comes back to being Christian. Everyone. They don't, I was actually looking for, there's, there was an article that I had read years ago, and it talked about how people are starting church services now without God. Yeah, that's what I said too. The whole thing is, is we're going we're gonna to follow the format of what church does, but we're going to leave God out of it. So we're going to have somebody who is a powerful speaker come up, and they're going to give us a, a great rah, rah, rah speech, and we're going to feel good about who we are. And we're going to have great music, and you know, afterwards we're all going to hang out, and it's going to be everything about church that's good and positive, but there's not going to be any God in it at all. And it was you know, becoming popular. They had uh, one that was down in Los Angeles. They had one that was somewhere on the East Coast and, you know, big cities. And they were like filling 10,000 people were coming and taking part in these things. And I just thought, how sad. You know, reminding me of that scripture that said that having a form of godliness, they'll deny the power thereof. And that's exactly what that, what that is. That's exactly what's happening. They missed the whole point. Yeah, it's great to get together. Yeah, it's great to have fellowship. It's good to hear a good message. But if you don't have God behind it, it is of very little value, very little. So the, the next part of our, our church name is fellowship. Church ties in with being a Christian, but I believe that God specifically um, had them name the church fellowship for this reason. Um, let's go to uh, John, 1 John chapter 1. And this is one of my favorite scriptures. It's First uh, John chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 3. And I want to give you a little bit of background about this. Um, John 
was a teenager when Jesus walked the earth. He was the youngest of all the disciples. He was the one who laid his head on Jesus. He was the one who said, I am the one whom he loves. Now, that sounds weird if that's a 30-year-old guy with a 30-year-old guy walking around with his head on his shoulder. I mean, nowadays it doesn't seem too weird. But, you know, back then that would have seemed a little bit strange. Right? Are you with me? Now, picture just a 15-year-old kid. He's away from his parents. There's an authoritative figure in his life, Jesus. He's popular. Everybody seems to like him. And everything that he says is uplifting and it's building this guy up. He loves him. He's like, man, this guy is just so great. He never lets me down. He tells me the truth even when it hurts. He's a close friend. He's everything that I've ever wanted in a person. And so he says, I love you, Jesus. And it doesn't seem weird at all when you think that's a 15-year-old kid that's doing that. He was so close and so attached to Jesus. Like I said, he was the youngest. He was also the, the oldest at the end. He was about 90 years old. He had taken in Jesus' mother. Remember, at the crucifixion, he was the only one who was still there. Everybody else had scattered. He was the one who was there. And Jesus said, you know, woman, behold your son. And, you, you know, basically he said, you take care of her. And he did all the days of his life. They lived in a, in a place up above uh, in Ephesus. There was a gigantic temple. It was the Temple of Artemis, Temple of Diana. It was a huge temple. And John was hiding out taking care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, until the day she died, living in this little building up above in Ephesus, looking straight down on the temple. Temple of a fake, fake god, of a false god. And when he uh, was finally captured, how he got to the Isle of Patmos was uh, Domitian was the emperor at the time, and he had erected this giant statue. And the rule was, because, you know, these emperors, they're all, like, power-hungry. The rule was, as you walked by the statue, you were supposed to bow and give, you know, reverence to the statue. John wouldn't do it. He would go through town. He would walk by the statue and just ignore it completely. And so the, the royal guards and, you know, Domitian's people said, hey, this guy isn't paying you any reverence. So they said, go up and get him. Bring him down here. What are we going to do with you? And he said, you know, I'll give you one last chance. Go ahead, bow to my statue. I said, no, you're not God. I don't bow to anybody but God. Would to God that we had a backbone like that. And they said, fine, we're going to boil you in oil. We'll make you do this. So they put him in, dunked him in oil. Flesh should just, you know, fall off the bone. Have you ever overcooked a chicken? Deep frying a chicken? No. They put in this big hook that normally would rake out all the bones, and he rode that hook right up out of the oil. So what do you do with a man you can't kill? He's like, I can't leave him here. He's going to incite a riot. Ephesus was one of the most powerful cities of the day. What do, what do we do with this guy? Well, let's send him to this little island. Let's send him out where there's a prison camp. And they sent him out to Patmos. So while he's out on Patmos, 
He's living in a cave. There's uh, supposedly one person that's living in the cave with him, and that's where he received revelation, the revelation from God. In his 90s, as the last living apostle, after he wrote the book of Revelation, he was released from the Isle of Patmos, and he came back to Ephesus. He went back home. While he was there, he wrote this book. Now, at the time, what was going on was there was a big movement in the church. He's 90. Jesus has been dead for 60 years, 60, 55, 60 years, somewhere around there. The Apostle Paul had come, big giant movement. He had established churches all over the, all over the place. You know, the church was young, but it was, it was, its foundation was strong. But yet, Paul had died. And so now he's the last remaining disciple, first of all, who, who had been with Jesus at all. But he's the last of the original disciples who had been scattered all over, all over the world who were distributing the gospel. He's the last eyewitness, so to speak. And so this group had come, and they were called Gnostics. And they had a thing, it was called Gnosticism. And um, let me read to you a little bit of what Gnostics were. It says... Okay, well, never mind. It was about 95 AD. I don't want to look for it. <laughs> Sometimes when you preach, you have a lot of notes, and I'm notorious for that. But what it basically said was they, were, they considered themselves enlightened ones. They considered themselves ones that were super, super smart in the things of the spiritual nature. But their doctrine, their major tenet of faith, was that Jesus never actually existed in the flesh. He was a spirit, and he had just come in... And it was catching fire all over the place. People were believing it like crazy. I mean, we get a lot of weird doctrines that come through our days. But can you imagine a doctrine where they said, nope, he was just, you know, a spirit man. And, you know, you have to be really enlightened to understand him. And he never was actually here. And so John comes back from Patmos. And the first thing he hears is how the church is turning towards Gnosticism. All these people who have faith in Jesus Christ all of a sudden are starting to believe well, you know, it's kind of like a story. He was a fictional character and, you know, as a representational idea of who he was and he just came in the spirit. And so how does John start his book? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, um, which our hands have handled, the word of life. I can just see him sitting there at the table, all upset about what's going on. And thinking, how can you possibly say this guy didn't exist? I was there. I did you not head on the you know, did you not see that? Have you not seen that big painting? You know, all of us twelve disciples sitting there, Jesus right in the middle, my head, and he's in my head. Did you not see that? No. He just sat there and he thought, man, how quickly people stray from truth. How quickly people forget how quickly we want to latch on to ideas of men who think that they know something. And so he begins writing what becomes a canonized scripture, and he says, that which we have, have seen, that which we have beheld, he's like, I have touched him. I have been with him. I have physically been in his presence. That, that which I have heard, I can still hear his voice. You know, in Revelation, when it was talking about... Um, him hearing the voice of God, he's, he said, 
I remember Rick, Rick Renner wrote in a light, a light and Darkness in the first book. He said, you know, I'm standing there. He could just picture John just standing there in the mouth of the cave, and then he hears this voice, and it's the voice from, from a teenager. You know, a person's voice really doesn't change. Really. When, when you hear somebody who's older and when they're younger, I mean, once you get past, you know, puberty and your voice quits doing it correctly and all that, you, you get into your voice and it stays the same. And, and you can identify a person by their voice so quickly. And he knew right then that the spirit that was speaking to him, that was Jesus. He knew by the voice of God, you know, hey, this isn't some pizza vision. This is the real deal. Because I remember. I remember him. And so he's telling these Gnostics, he's, he's actually writing this, these three verses specifically for them. And he says, For the word of life was manifested, and we have seen it. We bear witness, and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. Um, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Um, in verse 1, it says, That which was, when, in the Greek, when you look at that, it says that it's, it's not a, a birth, but it's simply being. What he's saying is, Jesus has been since the very, very beginning. Yes, he was manifest in the flesh. Yes, I touched him. Yes, I beheld him. But he is a spirit. He does live on. It, it's not over when he was crucified. It wasn't the end of him. It was just him transferring over to a, another, another realm. So in a way, you're right. But in another way, you're completely wrong. Because there could be no redemption without the physical sacrifice, without the physical blood being shed of Jesus. There would be no redemption of, of man. There had to be a death. That was the price for the wages of sin is death, right? So he's telling him, yeah, yeah, in literal in Greek, he was. He's always been there. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. That which we've seen, that which we've heard, that which we've looked upon, and that which we've handled. There's a lot of people, like I said, that, that felt that, you know, Jesus was just a myth. He was just a, a historical figure, much like we would kind of look at like, a, I don't know, I guess there's not really a good illustration for that. But, you know, like we never, we never talked to George Washington. We, knew, we know that he existed. But we never doubt that he actually physically existed. We just take it as fact. These people were saying, no, no, he never even existed. Yeah, he may have actually been here, but he was only here in spirit. And John is, is emphatically stating, stating to them truth. Um, when the, in verse 2, when it says, uh, for that life was manifested, um, that word means uh, he was rendered apparent. So the Gnostics argued with him and said, well, yeah, he was rendered apparent. We all know that he was, you know, a spirit from God. So, yeah, he was totally apparent. But when you go further into that, it says that he was shining. He was apparent and publicly and externally apparent. That's the depth of the word that he uses. He's telling them, without doubt, he was physically here. And that's really, really important because what he's doing is dispelling lies. He's bringing forth truth. Um, so John's saying with his statement, I've personally heard his voice. I've heard, um, heard his voice. I've touched his flesh. I've seen him with my own two eyes. Jesus is more than a character in a novel or a parable in a story, but he was a man, and I walked with him. Um, so verse 3, 
It says the reason for John's declaration is this, that you might have fellowship with him. So we're back to the name of our church, fellowship. This word is the word um, kononea. It's K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. And it means a, a partnership. It means literal participation or social intercourse. It means pertaining or uh, consisting of money, benefaction. It means an act of doing good, a benefit that is uh, conferred or donation. It means communication. It means communion. It means distribution. I believe that the reason that, that God told pastors name this church Shekinah Glory Christian Fellowship is that we would have the manifest presence of God because of our faith in him. Shekinah Glory Christian and the fellowship part is that you will have a partnership. You will have a job that you will do that I will empower you to do because of this glory. And we'll work together to bring forth the things that I desire for this church. Does that make sense? You know, it'd be impossible to have a hospital where people could come in and receive healing physically, mentally, and spiritually unless there was a, a person who was here who could minister to that person. And that's the partnership that God's talking about. You know, God is so powerful that he could knock somebody down on the street and just take care of it himself. But he doesn't because he's in partnership with us. You know, Laurel was teaching, and, and I told her on Wednesday night, you're stealing my sermon. <laughs> and then this morning, I'm sitting there, and I looked at Christine as she's talking, and I said, you know what? She's preaching my sermon again. <laughs> but you know what that is? That's Conanea. That's a partnership. That's a working together. That's why so many times Pastor Peggy says, and you've heard her say it a million times, I didn't take home my book. I don't know what's going to be said. It just said it, and then Pastor came up here and preached it again. You come in here, you hear the early morning service, and then you turn around and you hear it again for the morning service. Over and over and over. Why is that? It's the same Holy Spirit. And they have the same mission, they have the same job, and they're utilizing the same instruction from the same teacher who's trying to get to us the same message, and he wants us to hear it. And how does faith come? By hearing. And what are they doing? They're preaching. They're proclaiming the word. Faith is coming to you. And God says, you know what? I'm going to hit you double. You're going to get this whether you want to get it or not. Because they're in partnership with God. They're bringing forth the plan and the purpose of God in our lives. They're giving us exactly what we need. And guess who else is in partnership with God the Father and his master plan and pastors hearing the voice of God? The Holy Spirit. And he's sitting there in, in your hearts as the word is coming forth and he is revealing truth to you. He is teaching you. He's telling you so many times. I can't believe how many times this happens. Pastors start teaching something, and the Holy Spirit teaches me something completely different than what they're teaching based on what they're teaching. And it's specifically for me, and it's exactly what I need in that time, in that hour. It's, it's, it would not make sense to you at all. 
And so many times I sit there and I think, man, that would just be a great sermon. But it would make no sense to you at all. I know this because I tried it one time. I got this great revelation from God, and it was specifically for me. And I tried to sit down and write a sermon about it, and it was impossible. I could have bring out kind of the message, but it, had, it wasn't going to have an impact. Because it was a message for me, specifically for me, from the Holy Spirit. And I think so many times that happens to all of us. I can see from the smiles on your faces that it's happening to you. So, fellowship, partnership, participation, social intercourse, um, benefaction, and active doing good. Fellowship is important to the church, to the bodies. Um, like ours, fellowship speaks of active participation. You know, I really enjoyed Wednesday night's sermon. <laughs> Laurel laughs and everybody else is shaking their heads. <laughs> but you know what I did? It was different. It was unexpected. It was fresh. And man, did it bring home a point. And I'm sitting there the whole time. She's preaching my sermon actively. Every single person in the room got up and did something. By design. It was not an accident. <laughs> you know how I know that? Because she's looking around saying, who haven't I used? Oh, I need to use you. Hey, Mr. Dan. <laughs> right? Do you guys like that? I really, I really liked it a lot. And the whole message was, if we all do our part, we're going to bring forth fruit. Amen. Right? Amen. I didn't miss the message. <laughs> so we all did our part. Some of us might have been begrudging. Some of us may have come up here just like, oh man, Laura, why did you do this? Why did you call me up here? I don't want to put dirt in a pot. Pour water on the floor. I don't want to pour water on these things. But the whole thing was, and God just kept telling me over and over, she's preaching your sermon. And I said, yeah, I know. And then the enemy is sitting here telling me, she's preaching your sermon. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And there's nothing greater that you can learn except by active participation. If we want to have fruit, then we need to be active. You know, this word, um, kononea, it says that we all have a part and we all have to do something. Now, the thing that I do may not be the thing that you do. And thank God, because then we double up and whatever. Each one of us has individual talents. Each one of us has individual gifts. If you were to say it in a Christian way, we are anointed in different areas. But there's something that I want you to read. I should have found it. Um, go to um, 1 Peter chapter 2 again. And um, we're going to look at verse 3 through 5. It says... Um, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as a living stone disallowed by men, but chosen of God and precious, you also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You know, in, in another spot, Paul is talking about um, you are, a, are a, a house. I'm going to paraphrase this. You are a house built by God. You're, you're jointly and fitly put together. And when, when he's talking about that, he's saying that each piece of wood is carved out exactly to the measure that it needs to be in order to build the house. You're jointly fit together. 
God has placed every one of us in this church for a reason. Some of you like to clean. I don't like to clean, but some of you enjoy cleaning the church. Some of you will do the soundboard. Others may not. Some of you like to go back and work with children. Others would rather sit in here and listen to the word. <laughs> some of you are anointed and equipped to work with youth. Others are not. Some of you work with the nursery. You like babies. I, for one, do not like babies. <laughs> I like them. They're cute. But, you know, when they do their stuff, they need to go to mom. Because <laughs> dad ain't going to deal with it. <laughs> not normally. Right? But that's an anointing. That's a grace that God has given each one of us. Some of you know the words to speak to someone who's having times of struggle. Some of you know when to smile. And just, just your smile is uplifting to people. Some of you know how to, to operate in business and you know, bring forth finances to help the church continue to go and, and grow and prosper. Some of you have personalities that are so bubbly and bright and shining, and you always seem like you're in such a good mood that you uplift the entire building. Every one of those things is important, and every one of those things is needed, and every single one of those things makes up the house of God. Every single one of you has an important place and purpose in this church. I look at the, the, what's going on in the children's church and, and being administrator for those years. I know what the plans and purposes were, and I know how hard it is to get that in motion and get it moving. And I just, I just am floored when I walk in there and I looked at all that Mike had done and, and that, that cave and, and the door that opens and the cross. And I just like, that is so incredible. I mean, the level of craftsmanship that's there. If I would have done that, <laughs> Nada laughs, but I'll tell you inside, the person who's laughing the most, <laughs> the creativity that's there, the vision that's there, you know, the lessons that you guys uh, put together for the children, the things that you do, planting seeds and, and watering, and, and this is my fake tree with real fruit, <laughs> Right? Those are all gifts from God. Those are anointings from God. And it's all important, and it's all good. And that's what partnership is all about. And that's why our church is named what it is. We're in partnership with God. We're in partnership to, to bring forth the glory of God into our, into our presence, to bring forth the, the people who, who need God. And our pastors are the forefront I think it's Hebrews 6, the very last verse, it talks about Jesus being the forerunner. And the forerunner is the one who goes before and he clears the way. And that's our pastors. They're right behind Jesus and they're knocking down all the bushes and trees and so that we have a nice paved road that we can just walk down and do our thing and feel good about ourselves, right? But they're up front and they're the ones who are taking the brunt and the beatings. And they're the ones who are hearing the criticisms. And they're the ones who are hearing, man, you preached too long. Man, you didn't preach long enough. Man, the music is terrible. Man, I really like the music. Man, how come the church wasn't clean? Oh, man, how come there was a Kleenex over there? I didn't like the color. I didn't, you didn't smile at me. You know, they hear all that and they just deal with it. And God has graced them. God has equipped them to deal with people. Because you never know who's going to walk through these doors. And you never know what their past is, and you never know what they're going to say. I know because I was one of them. 
I walked through these doors and I was a mess. And I came in here to hear Christine sing. And we were in the upper room at the, the old you know, church on Lincoln. And for those of you who were never there, there was a wall that was across the back. And there was this great big sign, Jennifer Falcon had painted it. And it was Jeremiah 29, 11. And that was one of my favorite verses. And I just kept looking at it and thinking, oh, that's cool. And God kept telling me, this is a place where you're going to be. This is a place where you're going to be planted, where you're going to grow, where you're going to learn the word. And I'm like, I am here to hear her sing. I got a church, thank you very much. I hear you over there too. But you know, the one thing, it, it overwhelmed me when I first came. I had gone to a church and there was a thousand people in the, in the church. And I was a face in the crowd. There was a small group of people that I was really tight with and, and close with. And that was our college and career group. And I was really close with the person who led that group because he was the one who led me to the Lord. The, the girl who actually invited me to church was in that group. And it was a tight-knit group and I did not want to leave. I had preached my very first sermon there. It was a train wreck. <laughs> it was terrible. Okay, I'll... Uh, I have time for a story. Real quick. I like to prepare. This sermon has seven pages of notes. When I went to that sermon, I had about 20 pages of notes. Okay? Because my intent was, I'm going to stand in front of these people, and I'm just going to read my notes. I ain't going to have to say nothing that's not written. I'm going to read you a speech. That was my intent. The night before, this is where I learned to hear the voice of God. And I'm telling you, I learned to hear the voice of God. The night before, I was reading my Bible like a good little Christian boy. And I came across this, ver this uh, verse as I was reading. And it said, uh, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And boy, that blew up on the inside of me. And I said, man, that's really cool. That would, you know, I bet I could like write a whole sermon on that. So I did. I stayed up all night and wrote a sermon on it. Tried to preach it the next day after I had just barely read it for the very first time the night before. And that was a mess. I remember standing up there with all my notes talking about faith. And I had no practical experience or knowledge about faith at all. And I'm standing up there and I'm just sweating because I'm freaking out. There's all these people that I really like and that I care about what they think about me. And I'm out of notes, and I'm eight minutes into a 45-minute sermon. And I'm completely out of notes. And, you know, that was the days where you had a paper Bible, and you did not have search. <laughs> there was no faking it. And I just went, God, I know I missed your voice. I'm still talking, but inside I'm freaking out. And I'm saying, God, I know I missed your voice. I know I wasn't supposed to do this. I know that I've been led astray. Rescue me. <laughs> Help me. Preserve my life, oh God. <laughs> and I looked in the back of my Bible and it had one page from the original sermon I was supposed to do. One page. Had 32 minutes still to go. And that was a church where you did 40 minutes. If you were going to teach, you did 40 minutes. And everybody in the whole congregation, I mean everybody, is looking at me like, what is he doing? Because I was saying, and in conclusion, and they're like, he's eight minutes in. What are you doing? And I was going, I don't know what I'm doing. Don't look at me. Look at the tree, man. I don't know. 
That one page of notes from the original sermon lasted 32 minutes. That one page of notes was the best thing that they had heard in that college and career group ever. That one page of notes. Why? Because it was the thing that God had told me to preach. It was the thing that he had anointed to preach. And it was the thing that was flowing right in line with what was being taught by the leaders of the group. And he saved my life. Thank you, Lord. And I remember that every single time I come up to teach. I always say, you know, thank you, God, that you'll give me the words to speak. And that's not just a prayer that, you know, I'm just praying out of religiousness. I'm really praying that he will give me the words to speak. And I want him to be the right words. And I want him to be the words that will minister to you and to me. Because I'm expecting to receive things when I come up here. But there's a partnership that's there. There's a, a job that, that you're doing. Even back then, I recognized it. You know, when, when I was teaching, I was, you know, teaching at the, at the encouragement of the leaders of the group. And they were teaching along a certain path. And I had written a sermon that was along that same path because that was what God had shown me. And then I got out of the way. I got, well, actually, I got in the way. And I tried to do something else. And it didn't go right. And I knew it wasn't God. And I knew it wasn't God as soon as I got up there and started to go. And then I was like, man, I'm going quick. What do I do now? And God rescued me. Because why? Because he's in partnership with me. He said, you're not just speaking your word up there. You're speaking my word. You're not just talking to your friends. You're talking to my children. And I'm going to minister to them. And I'm going to bring forth life to them. And I'm going to give them the words that they need. And now you're going to say them. And now you've recognized that listen for me. Know what you know. Stay in your lane. <laughs> and yeah, it's an important thing. As a fellowship, as Shekinah Glory Christian Fellowship, we all have a part, we all have a role that we play. Some of us are waterers, some of us are planters, some of us are harvesters. But we all have a part to play. Amen. So I encourage you, find your part. Fill your role. Do your jobs. Do them with joy. There's a reward that comes. Amen. Um, yeah, that's it. We will get out early. Any questions, comments? No tomatoes? Remember to pray for pastors. They are flying today from what I understand. Amen. Greet them. When they come back, try to get Laurel out of the way so you can give them a hug. Because <laughs> she'll be standing there going, thank God you're here. Thank God you're here. Amen. Amen. Let them know you missed them. And be, come, come expecting. Come ready because they have things for, from God for you. Fresh, new things from God for you. Amen. 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 So let's all stand. Don't forget your identity who you're aligned with. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for this day. I ask, Father God, that you would uh, remind us and instill in us who we are in you, that we are your children, that we are more than just ordinary people, but we are the, the, the sheep of your pasture. And I thank you, Father God, that you anoint us and equip us to do the things that you've called us to do, Father God. I thank you that you've graced us with abilities, with ideas, Father God. And Father, I just ask that as the people see needs, Father God, that they, they 
go out of their, themselves to, to meet these needs, that we all become active participants and partakers in the fellowship of this church. And I just give you all the praise and glory for it. I ask that you keep us all safe and keep us all dry and warm in Jesus' name. Amen.